All right, Chris, what do you what do you got for us? Well, I, I, it's funny that that you, you should mention the, uh, the the I guess the nematodes, right? There was there was a story I was thinking about talking about that. There were two articles that I spotted in the New York Times that both sort of tickled my interest. Uh, and one of them was about how certain roundworms seem to be able to detect ultraviolet light and move away from it, even though they don't have any eyes. And so that there were oh, cellular cool. receptors on the nematodes that allowed them to sort of sense this exposure to radiation in some way that, you know, utilized a totally different cellular pathway other than like the, you know, the ability to see per se. So, but I couldn't figure out a way of spinning that in into a longer narrative. So in, instead, I, I came across <laughs> a, another story in the New York Times, which actually was even more fascinating. That is a shout out to the Boston University people uh, who study astrophysics. They published this fascinating paper recently about this event that happens on a regular basis where the, the moon generates a beam of sodium ions that's that fires out like a laser from the backside of the United States of, of the of the world excuse me and the way this works is that you know the moon is constantly being hit by meteorites meteors I guess that they become meteorites after they've hit. So they, the, the moon is being pulverized, and each time it's it's struck, it causes a little cloud of dust to fly up into the, it's not the atmosphere because there's no atmosphere, but it, it flies up into, you know, away from the surface of the moon. And because these particles are very small, they can stay there suspended for a very long time. And so these particles are like, so basically the moon is surrounded by this sort of invisible sphere of sodium ions. And these sodium ions get sucked up by the, the Earth's gravity and pulled towards the earth. And then they, they stream around the earth, sort of forming a halo. Now, at the same time, the moon is going around the earth. And so it's directing this beam of sodium ions in different ways. And at the point where the moon and the earth align exactly so that their gravitational fields are perfectly aligned, these sodium ion fields that have been transferred from the moon to the earth, then eject out the backside, the far side of the earth in a more or less straight line like a laser. And uh, with special equipment, you can see this. And, and of course, we can't see this. But mm -hmm. the thought of this is just so, so fascinating that unbeknownst to us, our planet is basically firing out this beam of high energy particles into space. Kind of like, uh, you know, we're, it's like we're picking up the comet's tail, but here the comet is the moon. And, you know, the, 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 the stream of sodium particles that are being driven off the moon towards us are being driven by photons from the sun. So it's, it's like, you know, the, the moon really is literally acting like a comet, where the hmm. tail of these sodium ions is being driven constantly away from the direction of the sun's light. And when it hits the earth and at just that right moment where the, the beams and the, the gravitational fields of light, you get this blast like a laser of sodium ions off into space. And, and the thought of that just like shocked my world. Very cool. This is not something I've ever heard anything about. Yeah, I mean, I wish you could go to, you know, go to the far side and and watch it, but you but you can't. No, because there's nothing to see. But if you had like a a sodium photometer, I don't know what it would be called. So sodiometer. A sodiometer, right? You know, this is the best thing that happened to dinner since salt. <laughs> anyway, okay. that's what I wanted to talk about. Very cool. Very cool. All right, so the CDC just released guidance that fomites, which are surfaces and objects, are not considered to be a very efficient means of transmitting 
COVID-19. And this is this is mm-hmm. sort of a hobby horse that Chris and I have been on for a while. And we were glad to see that the CDC finally agrees with us that it's not it's not worth uh, investment of time washing Stop you know, the, the hygiene out, in the, theater. The, out, the outside of your Cheerios box. But there, there, there's a body of evidence to suggest that, in fact, there are uh, there are there are there are studies that have looked at the persistence of pathogens on surfaces. And there's one in particular, which is from the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition from Clemson. Pete Dawson is the first author. And it's the residence time and food contact time effects on transfer of Salmonella typhimurium from tilewood carpet. Testing the five second rule. Ha! I love it. So you guys know what the (laughs) five-second rule is, right? I live by the five-second rule. What are you talking about? When you you describe to the listeners what the five-second rule is. Well, if you drop your food on the floor, if you pick it up within five seconds, it is totally safe to eat. <laughs> right, right. Totally. So, so what these guys, what these people did is that they took a, a pure culture of Salmonella typhimurium and with specific amounts, and they put it onto three different services, finished wood, carpet, and ceramic tile. And bottom line is they found that the five-second rule is in fact true, but it depends. <gasps> But it depends. So they they were able to obtain approximately 60% of the bacteria on the the initiation surface, if it was a ceramic tile, from a piece of bologna that was in contact with that ceramic tile for five seconds or less. So, however, if that same piece of bologna was applied to a carpet, that contained the same concentration of salmonella on the carpet, less than 5% of those bacteria were transferred to the bologna. And that was even more true mm. to a piece of bread. I was crestfallen because they did not, along with that test, a one-sided <laughs> piece of bread with uh, peanut butter on it. So I think that's a, yeah, that was, a huge gap. That would have been the way to go. Scientific approach. That would have been the more interesting. Further research but, is needed. Further so research you, is needed if, for sure. If you if you drop your donut, your Krispy Kreme donut on the carpet, you're safe. But if you drop it onto a ceramic tile floor, you have to kiss it goodbye. Oh my gosh, uh, that that is mostly good news your free Krispy Kreme donut that you got for getting your your COVID-19 vaccine which by the way the the closest Krispy Kreme to us appears to be in Connecticut I went and looked it up so <laughs> sure. we gotta go we yeah. gotta go we road uh, trip that's what I say yep probably a Krispy Kreme donut without pathogens is probably just as dangerous for your health as a Krispy Kreme donut with pathogens that's probably true that's probably true because I have a short one that's going to build on this idea of the of issues with journals. This is a story about uh, an article that came out in March of 2020 in the American Journal of Biomedical Science and Research, and it was a it was a COVID paper. The title of the paper was "Silage City COVID-19 Outbreak Linked to Zubat Consumption," and Zubat. the thing about Bats and zoos? The, Zubat, Z-U-B-A-T, Zubat what consumption. Is that? Yeah, well, so that is the point that uh, Zubat is a Pokemon character. <laughs> and so this was a made-up sting-type article done to expose a predatory journal. Now, we have, oh, good. We have 
talked about many we have talked about many of these stings you know over a period of time this one was done by a, a, a an author named matan uh, shalomi so why am i talking about this given that we have talked about so many of these stings exposing predatory journals what is particularly new about this one and the thing that i found really interesting about this one is that the article this wasn't the only article but he had other articles that that fell along this these lines the article itself contained lines in the text such as a journal publishing this paper does not practice peer review and must therefore be predatory <laughs> or this this invited article is in a predatory journal that likely does not practice peer review. And it got published anyway. So it's like, <laughs> let's just put it completely out what there. Was, what, what was the journal? Point. It was the American Journal of Biomedical Science and Research. But I just thought, wow, that's taking it to a whole new level if you're just going to wow. tell them in the paper this is a sting and they don't even bother to, to read it. So that one, that one made me quite happy. This is a funny story that came across my news feed. It got some media attention, so maybe you both saw it. The overgrown sheep. Mm. Did you see this? No. There was a no. So you know, so sheep. You know, some of my work has to do with domesticated animals and food production animals, and so that was probably why this one came over my 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 news feed. Um, but you know, sheep are domesticated, right? They're they're not wild animals. But in Australia, a couple of months ago, they found a a sheep that had escaped. It either had escaped or it had been intentionally let let loose from its farm environment and had not been shorn, and it was unclear, but probably many, many years. And this sheep was like walking, you know, kind of walking in the, you know, through the through the fields. And people thought it was it was like some sort of, you know, scary alien creature. It was the Monster. Yeti or it was something. But it was right. It was so it was carrying almost 80 pounds of wool. <gasps> Wow. And because and so it was interesting. So I don't know, you know, if it's like a natural experiment, what happens to a sheep if it's not shorn for long periods of time? Like does the the wool just anyway, the answer is that at least for this particular sheep, the wool just continues to grow and grow and grow. And um, anyway, they put some pictures of up on online and it's kind of it's it's like it can hardly see. It's like it's a frightening I was animal. gonna say, could it could yeah. it walk? It could walk, but it it just it it looked it looked like I don't. I don't even. I can't even describe it. It's like you know, because the wool gets so matted too. It almost looks like the poor thing is like wearing trash, right? Because it's like all matted down. But then the happy, you know, the story ended in a happy way where they, they, um, you know, they they sheared the sheep and then they put a little jacket on him and he's like Aww. so happy now. He's got this little blue jacket and I don't know. He went back to live on a farm, but wow. I don't know. It was it was you know it was making me think of you know animals that are domesticated that people take on during the pandemic. This was like slightly unrelated. And then they're going to, you know, like, like chickens, for example, mm -hmm. you know, backyard chickens have been exploding because of the pandemic and everyone wants chickens. Wait, 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 yeah. not literally exploding. <laughs> Not literally not exploding. No, for. the phenomenon, demand for. Yeah, sorry, no, chicken chickens are not exploding. But no, the idea that you know people are getting chickens because they're home a lot, and then eventually we're not all going to be home a lot, and right. And so when you take on these animals, then yeah. well, I gotta say, I'm I'm actually quite concerned about my dog who we've had mm -hmm. for. 13, 14 years now, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm concerned when we all go back to work that he's going to be lonely because yeah. we've had us around the house for 
oh, a year and a half. I'm going on two years almost by the time, well, I guess a year and a half. But yeah, I, I worry about these pets. Do you want to borrow my uh, my clippers? <laughs> no. The ones I use to shave so. my head? <laughs> nope. 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 Okay. So, Chris, do you have one or you don't have one? I do have one. Oh, all right. I'm going to talk about the Mellotron. 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 Mellow. Mellow. Right, I'm feeling Mellow. All right. So you know the Mellotron. I you do. Just, you, it's, it's an instrument. Yeah, It's a I keyboard do. instrument. It looks it looks like a little synthesizer. kind of sounds like a synthesizer. When you were talking about this earlier, I pretended I did not know, but I know you what know. a Mellotron is. Is that the keyboard you blow into? No, no. A Mellotron, it, it's, it looks well, like a little... That's harmonia, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think that's no right. Uh. Yeah, good call. The Mellotron looks like, looks like a Hammond organ. It's a little, you know, cabinet organ with a keyboard and some knobs and stuff on it. I became interested in the Mellotron totally by accident because when I'd gone on, uh, I took a, a working holiday to St. John of the U.S. Virgin Islands in the spring. And while I was on there, I was, you know, I had hours to fill every day because I wasn't working that hard. Uh-huh. So I'm um, mostly snorkeling and hiking, you know, and drinking painkillers, as they're called there, having a really great time. Where is the Mellotron going to come in here? And uh, I also started like downloading Remember, a lot of music Chris. and okay. listening stuff. And, and one of the groups I downloaded was was the Moody Blues. Gordon which I, Lightfoot. Uh, no, that was, that was later. <laughs> but right. the Moody Blues. The Moody Blues. And, um, and I, I, I really liked their music. And I, and I actually have since then become totally obsessed with the Moody Blues. And I listen to them constantly. And I, and I think they're, they're a really interesting band. And one of the things that's interesting about them is that they have this unusual sound. And the unusual sound is the Mellotron. Their unusual sound, if you had to describe it, was, is kind of like, like weird-sounding strings that creates this sort of ethereal, you know, ghostly ambiance to their music. Mm-hmm. Maybe the best example of that is then their their 1960s hit song Knights of White Satin mm-hmm. where it goes the doodle 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 doo that's the Mellotron that does that little theme some try to tell me thoughts they cannot defend now, so I was like, what the heck is the Mellotron, right? Uh-huh. Isn't this just a synthesizer? And the answer is no. That The Mellotron was this really weird instrument that had a brief heyday back in the 1960s and 70s before synthesizers became the thing. And it was the, the Mellotron is essentially the world's first sampling instrument. So like when I say a sample is that you record, you know, Matt Fox saying multiple imputation and then you play that over and over and you hear Matt going multiple imputation multiple tapes and multiple you know you sample it right and you play it over and over and you can actually make that into part of a song I've listened to that right you know a lot of a lot of hip hop artists do sampling all the time so the Mellotron was the first sampling instrument but it was all analog and then the way it worked was that supposing you wanted to play a C on the keyboard of the Mellotron so behind the thing you take off the, the cabinet you look inside what you'll see is that every key is hooked up to a, a spool of recording tape, mm-hmm. but it's not a it's not a loop. It's a it's a it's about a two foot or three foot stretch of recording tape that's a little bit wider, and it's wider because it functions like an eight track tape. And the way you would play a C is that you would go and find a violin player, and you'd say play a C, sort of constant tone and pitch, play it for twenty seconds, and I'm going to record you on that piece of tape. 
And so now you have C being played for 20 seconds, and eventually the violin is, actually, actually eventually the, the tape ends, and so mm-hmm. it has to stop. And then you do the same thing for C sharp and D and E, and all of a sudden you create the entire series of the vi- that same violinist playing it. But of course the violinist can't play a constant C, mm-hmm. and they can't play it perfectly in tune, because otherwise you'd capture the sound of the tuner as well. So the, 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 the pitch of the Mellotron C is not quite a C, and it is not quite a C over time. And it's mechanical, because every time you press the key, what it actually does is it, it drops like a, a tensioner down onto the, onto the piece of tape, which causes that tape to now spool across a recording head. Okay, uh-huh. um, but it's doing this by the pressure of your finger, and so if you press too hard, it'll slow the tape down, and so the the, the C will go flat as you press on the key. And if you go more than twenty seconds, it stops abruptly because that's all it it's can good. only go as far as it can go. And then, like you do the same thing, you've mapped out your entire you know set of notes with the violinist playing, trying to play each of these notes, and then you move the recording head one step to the right on this this piece of recording tape and you do the same thing with a flute and then do the same thing again with a cello or whatever you want to do so you couldn't record anything onto it and then play it back mm-hmm. by pressing this this thing but it is such a wacky instrument that is so temperamental and you can't play it fast of course because each time you press it it has to engage the movement of the tape and so it's all kind of delayed and slow and fuzzy and uh, you know it is a it is an interesting instrument that was really a bridge towards synthesizers. Mm. And then, of course, once you could make any sound you want and play it for as long as you want digitally, you get rid of all of this. But if you go back and listen to the original like Moody Blues songs and listen to the, to the Mellotron in particular, it becomes fascinating because it's such an odd sound. It doesn't really sound like a violin. It doesn't really sound like a flute. It sounds like something that kind of wanders in and out of pitch and gets a little bit louder and quieter over time, and it's just odd. And if you play the same note over and over, you're catching the tape at different points. And so you've caught him higher or lower on his pitch or on his volume scale. And it makes the sound of the Mellotron utterly unique. And and that, so I, I encourage you all to go and go back to the Moody Blues 1960s. Mellotron. Take a listen to the, some of their, their, their great, you know, listen, Tuesday afternoon would be another good one. But uh, Knights of White Satin is, is a good place to really hear the Mellotron. And it's also interesting because in, in that song, they also have an orchestra. So you get to hear the actual orchestra playing as opposed to the Mellotron trying to sound like an orchestra. Mm. So, cool. I learned something. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with epidemiology. That's it's just fine. cool. That's fine. That's fine. All right, so I have a paper that was published in the journal. This has got to be, I have to get a subscription to this journal. The Journal of Applied Volcanology. Ooh. What, uh, you're going to have to give not me more. Volcanology. Not Volcanology. This vo- is not about Spock. Oh, okay. This is not. Volcanology. Vol- Volcanoes. 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 Not, not yeah. Vulcans. Got, yeah. got it. So it's entitled Volcanic Fatalities Database, Analysis of Volcanic Threat with Distance and Victim Classification by Brown, Jenkins, Sparks, and Odebert, um, the Journal of Volcanology. And it is an absolutely fascinating repository where they have gone through all of the available literature and they have characterized every death that resulted from the eruption of a volcano or gases emitted from a dormant volcano since 1500 AD. They have 278,360 
eight volcano-associated fatalities. That's amazing. It's a lot. So what they do is they categorize these by cause of death, because mm. there are several subsets in terms of the cause of death. I could so imagine, there are yep. pyroclastic density currents. So the, these are pyroclastic flows. So it's a burp from the volcano of superheated air. And it cascades down the mountain and just wipes out a whole swath of people. Tsunamis, lahars, which are volcanic oh, yeah. mud flows, tephra, which are which is volcanic ash, ballistics, things shooting things, out, things they, shooting out, big heavy rocks that get shot out, avalanches, lava flows, and then gas which is also comprised of quiescent gas, which is gas that's emitted from a dormant volcano, but it's still toxic gas. Oh, okay, yep. As well as lightning. That Wait, it, what? Lightning induced by a volcanic eruption. Because of all the, the, the collision of dust particles creating static electricity. Uh, yes. This is, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Volcanoes create lightning? They do. When they, the big gas clouds and you know, ash clouds go up, all those little tiny bits of, of lava are going bing, 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 and it's like a giant like rubbing Mix. rubbing of a, me, of a plastic rod, and you get static electricity and kapow. In the same way that sharks cause tornadoes? Do they? Yeah. <laughs> Sharknados. Yeah. Well, so, I suspect so they, have a whole, they, 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 <laughs> they present a whole bunch of really interesting data that's too long to go into, but there's a couple of tables, one of which is seven largest incidents in terms of loss of life. So in 1883, Krakatoa killed 36,000 people. Wow. Ouch. Wow. It was... Jeez. From a tsunami. Uh, Martinique in 1902 killed 28,000 people because of pyroclastic burps that came off the volcano and they they apparently were distributed evenly and martinique is essentially a, a round it's a tiny little island with a volcano in the middle the the cause of death that is the greatest are these pyroclastic flows and the total number of deaths since the 1500s is about 60,000 individuals Oy. and tsunamis have killed about 56,000 they have a, a table of the number of deaths Due to quiescent volcanic gas emissions. So that gas is being emitted from so a dormant volcano. So you're you're like you're just hiking. Yeah. So you hike there into was, a gully and there's a lot of methane and carbon dioxide leaking right, out and met, you suffocate. Right, there were carbon monoxide. So in uh, Cameroon in 1986, there was a quiescent gas emission which killed 1,500 and 65 villagers. Jeez. I'm going to stay away from volcanoes. Volcanoes That's for are sure. bad. Yeah. Nick is Nick oh, wow. is showing us that. a picture of go. a a volcano with lightning. Volcano with lightning. I've never seen this before. That is so cool. Uh, so shocking as well. Yeah. Have you been to Pompeii, either of you? No. No. I, it, if you ever go to Italy, and to. you're near Naples, Herculaneum, you should go to right? go to uh, Pompeii. Yeah. And and the excavation of the of the ancient Roman city. It's just it's just See, fascinating. That must have been a pyroclastic flow. I think it because was because they people were frozen and or not frozen, but they were and then they were. Can- Basically buried in the in the ash, right, and then dug up, you know, a hundred years ago, and right. they're still in those poses. In position, yeah, in position. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. Well, I have a quiz for you all. This is a a quiz that's been going around. Well, it's not a quiz, but it has been going around the the interwebs. Is this which a I, paradox? I finally no. It's oh. a quiz. Okay. What's a paradox? Paradoxical quiz. Quiz. Okay. I couldn't find the the source for this, so I tried to verify that this is actually legit before I put it out into the world. It may not be, but I at least could verify some of these things were were correct. But the the quiz is the following. I give you a list of ingredients, and you need to tell me, is this 
chocolate, toothpaste, wine, or vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I will, I will give you, I'll give you the first one. Ammonium phosphate, aluminosilicates, ascorbic acid, copper sulfate, poly, polyoxythene 40, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which one is that? I think that's vaccine. Toothpaste. That is wine. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, no. Great. Right. Fail. <laughs> Double Both fail. Both of us. Both of us. Right. Histidine, histidine hoxychloride, monohydrate, sodium chloride, magnesium chloride, hexadrate, disodium, ditch, something, sucrose, ethanol, absolute, polysorbate, 80, and water. I think that's toothpaste. I go for toothpaste. That is, in fact, toothpaste. <laughs> yes. No, it's not. Sorry, I got that one wrong. What is it? Might Sorry, be. you said toothpaste? No, that no. is a vaccine. <laughs> no. We're flailing here. All right, last one. Ah. Last one I'll give you. I can't even read this. N-archidinoethylenalamine C7H8N402 beta-phenyl... Could you say that number, that, that equation again? <laughs> <laughs> no. C7H8N402 2-phenylethyl... Ethylamine, so, nitrate, tetrahydrox, tetrahydrobeta carboline, epicatechin, the and tryptophan. Uh, is fluoride in that? No. It's not toothpaste? Nope. Oh. Chocolate. Chocolate. Oh, well done. <laughs> Only yep. the tryptophan. Right. Oh, <laughs> that was the giveaway. Oh. That was the giveaway. I was thinking they didn't put that in the vaccine. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. It, would, it, it would increase uptake. <laughs> Maybe. Like like there's something asleep. to like about yeah, that. Yeah. So I can't verify that that is totally legit, but I looked up some of the ingredients and they do appear to be associated with those products. So mm. I thought that was a, that was, it, it was a fun one. I presume that, I love that somebody put out there to make the point that just because there's scary ingredients doesn't necessarily make it something you wouldn't consume. So this was an article that initially I was drawn to because the topic seemed interesting to me. And then and then after reading it, the real story was in the comments. Oh. Okay, so, so, so this was an article that was published in the New York Times about a research article that was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. And the heading here is, Scientists found an animal that walks on three limbs. It's a parrot. Okay. And so, so, okay, so, 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 so hear this out. So what the, (laughs) you know, what the authors and this um, journalist was highlighting that kind of in the natural world, things tend to be bipedal. We have two arms, we have two legs. Most animals have legs and arms and features in pairs in an even number. Right. And it is, I think, unheard of to have an odd number of legs or an odd number (laughs) of arms. And, and so the argument was, is that really true? Is it really the case that every creature has an even number of arms and legs and features? You know, we, we don't have three kidneys. We don't have, you know, five ears, you know, that sort of thing. And so what they did is they did an experiment with parrots. They bought a group of parrots at the pet store and they kind of put together some sort of experimental wall where they could evaluate the pressure that the parrots were putting on the wall to, to climb up. Uh-huh. And so what they found is that the force exerted by the beak of the parrot oh my was equivalent and in some cases exceeded the force exerted by the feet. And so they said the parrots are using their beak as a third foot. I, I <laughs> okay. can believe that when they're, okay. when they're climbing... <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean they don't they don't walk with their beak, but they yeah. Yeah, okay. and so this right this, this this got a write up in the Times. It got a write up in Nature, okay. And then you scroll to the but comments. Hang on, who, <laughs> who thinks of this? Who's like, <laughs> okay, let's this 
who's here? Let's this put is together here. a machine that will measure <laughs> how much pressure a bird's okay. beak. Okay. All right. So, so <laughs> exactly. So in the comments to this article. There's all these people who were like, this is the stupidest study ever. Anyone who's owned a parrot has seen this happening. Oh, of course. And yep. so it was everyone, like all these people were writing in and be like, I've known this for decades. I, if you, if you own birds, you see that they do this. They use their beaks like a foot to, to move, to climb. And it was like person after person who was like, duh, this is like, <laughs> tell us something that we don't already know. And it brought up a really interesting kind of story in my mind. If we don't know it, does that make it science? If we, if we quantify it on a fancy wall that measures the force exerted by the beak and the parrot's feet, like that's science. But, it, it, you know, if it's something that is largely known by people who own birds, what is the contribution? there so that it it was striking to me that all That's these all these so bird owners funny. were like this is this is like so obvious and so silly that someone would actually do this and the rest of us were like wow yeah yeah exactly like, i don't i've so, never owned a bird or a parrot or anything and i'm like this is amazing three, you're like three feet <laughs> right? Right. you did right. as soon as as soon as you said it we, we both right went, that's oh, why yeah, yeah. yeah birds, well that's true they do that yeah, right. yeah, yeah. i yeah. birds do yeah. that but if you study a phenomenon as a scientist that is is kind of well known in a general landscape by kind of a lay audience just from observation. Kind of what is the line there between documenting something scientifically or mathematically that is observationally obvious? Yeah, it's a good I don't know. Question. It was an interesting question to me. But this obviously was like a high-hitting paper in the field. That's so cool. Yeah. Anyway. So while we're on the subject of parrots, I heard the story on NPR yesterday, but I, I probably everybody knew this except me about the Alex the parrot was like the most famous parrot and he he died I, I don't know when he died but he died of this wasn't this isn't new but oh. he had the, like the he had a vocabulary of like 100 something plus words and he could distinguish concepts so they would show him like you know different thing you know different and he would say what's different here and he would mm. look at it and he would say color oh my and goodness they would, say, they would say it's shape or mm -hmm. he could he could distinguish like he not only could talk he could communicate conceptually which Hmm. Parrots, man, they're smart. I know. It's I interesting because you think of parrots that they're just like repeating words no. without the cognition. No, yeah. they're yeah. smart. That's that's wow. crazy. I would, I would, yeah. I, I, there's something I can't. We should be about careful parrot. about parrots. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> be very careful yeah. with par parrots. Yeah. Uh, wind farms. Wind farms. Yeah. I so Massachusetts has finally approved. The construction of the wind farms mm. off of Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. Like Twenty it's been years, right? Forever, right? Yeah. That they've been talking about this, and so I, I ran across this article in Scientific American, which sort of talks about how you install wind turbines, and and we do not need to know how to do this. No, we don't. But, but, um, I mean, unless we're going to do what it I was here. So, I was so impressed with is is the size of these things that they they look big because you see them when you're driving along Route Three heading to the Cape. Yep. But they're really, 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 really big. Mm. These things are like. So Super big, and and so it's like some some facts here that the the wind turbines that they're installing in Vineyard Sound, which are each going to generate 13 megawatts 
They measure about 500 feet from the waterline to the rotor, which is the point where the... How many the, feet? 500 feet. 500 feet. They're 500 feet tall. And they go down 200 feet to the seabed. Yeah, that makes sense. And they are driven about 300 feet into the bedrock of the seabed. So the whole thing is actually taller than the John Hancock building hmm. when you when you do it. And it all has to be assembled by these, these huge boats, which are made in Denmark and are brought over. But the thing is that there, there's sort of legal issues around maritime law mm-hmm. that they're not allowed to actually do, like land at, on the United States and pick up the stuff. And so they have to bring other boats to ferry all the materials out to these boats so oh, they stay in international, or not international, but they stay offshore. And then they and they construct these things and they, you know, they do it in two ways. One is like a giant pile driver that sends this massive pylon, you know, 200 feet into the, into the bedrock. And that's for the shallow water turbines. And then for the the ones that are deeper water, they have these tripod things, which are these giant, massive, like, you know, pedestals that also go and drill themselves into the into into the bedrock and and to install these things the whole thing you know the boat that is carrying this can't be kind of bouncing around and bobbing in the waves mm-hmm. and so the boats themselves that install these these monsters drop down their own set of pylons and so they actually create they they touch down to the foot of the water 200 feet down Ooh. and then they raise themselves up hydraulically so they're no longer moving around in the water they're actually out of the water held by their own pylons as they install the pylons and you know they're gonna they're gonna put up I don't know dozens a hundred of these things just like it, 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 the the scale of this is is kind of mind boggling. That's awesome. It's so awesome, yeah. Because each one of these turbines can provide electricity for about thirty thousand homes, so they they are they're going to generate a ton of electricity through this project. We we should get one of those boats. Oh, we should. <laughs> they they make them in Denmark. How, how hard could it be to pilot one of those things, huh? Anyway, I thought I thought it was very I it cool, was totally cool, and and fascinating. And I wish I'm thinking like, can I take my little boat out there and go and check them out, or would that be suicide? Probably suicide. I'm gonna say suicide, and I'm not gonna encourage that. <laughs> JC, how about you? What do you got? So I figure since we are filming this on the week of Valentine's Day. Wait, is there a video camera? No, but okay. I'm going to talk about love languages. Oh. Yes. Okay, mine so, is to-do lists. <laughs> that would be my thanks two, although sharing. it's not thanks, one thanks of the five sharing. love languages, yeah. but to-do lists uh, on top of to-do lists are my yeah. thing, too. So my daughter is being bought misfit this year. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, we have we go to you know family sessions with other kids that are being born bought mitzvah, and we talk about becoming a Jewish adult. So the last one a few weeks ago was on empathy. And the rabbi was pointing out that you know in order to really have empathy, you have to understand where other people are coming from. And so she brought up the five love languages. So Gary Chapman in, you know, early 1990s developed these five love languages, which is words of affirmation. So that's when people value verbal acknowledgments of affection, compliments, words of appreciation. And that was actually when he did his study in, in 2010, that was the most common one. Then there's quality time. People feel most loved when they're with people they, they love and those people are not, you know, on their phones or devices and they're actively engaged. And then acts of service, people value when others go out of their way to do things for them, right? Gifts, people feel loved when people buy them things, and it's the thought behind the gift, not just the gift itself. And then physical touch, people feel most loved when they're receiving physical affection and and touch. And so the whole point of this was we all have our own love language, but to really have empathy, you need to step into the other person's shoes to understand their love language and then be able to have empathy. So that got me thinking about, okay, we've been in COVID now for you know two-plus years, has COVID changed our love language at all? Mm. Because for those of us that maybe didn't have physical touch as a love language, but 
have not had a hug from a family member in two years, maybe physical touch is now a love language, right? Or for those of us that really appreciate quality time, but are completely sick of being <laughs> in a house with three children, <laughs> uh-huh, um, you uh-huh. know, maybe now we really want like or, acts of service. So the kids will just help around the house. Uh-huh. I mean, I may be drawing from my own personal. No, obviously it's right. hypothetical. Hypothetical. <laughs> just, or just, just. So I was really interested in thinking like, is there a study out there to investigate if love language has changed in COVID? And there is. There is an international study It is being financed by the German Research Foundation, and there are two research questions. It's called the Coping with Corona Research Project, and their two research questions are, how do different people cope with the changes and restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and why do people differ in their well-being during the pandemic and the subsequent return to normalcy? So Normal. Exactly. That triggered me. Anyway, (laughs) but there's some collaborators in the United States, Stanford, Columbia, University of Texas at Austin and University of Texas at Austin is studying changes in love languages. And they have found that students' love languages have changed during COVID where people who before did, you know, really much rely on physical touch and haven't been able to do it now, now exchange letters with their families. And so it's just, it's interesting and it will be interesting to see as this evolves, you know, how our love languages change and how that maybe allows us more empathy, right? Because if you shift from one love language to another, you have a greater appreciation then mm. for that that way of seeing things. So I just thought that was interesting. And the fact that there's a, a study actually investigating it is pretty cool. And maybe we can get BU on board because I think they're still <laughs> looking for collaborators. <laughs> I think that's great. I So I um, when that when that book came out, I really liked it. It's a, it, To me, it's sort of a you know, it's a pop psychology. It's a, it's a way to frame things yeah. that I don't really believe that people have one love language, obviously it's a, and I don't think it's necessarily comprehensive, but it's fine. Like that's what we look to pop psychology for. But, but in learning that, so then obviously then the next thing you do is you go through all your family members and you figure out what is their, what is their love language. And then, and so then the, the, the obvious question then becomes, how do you then use that information is the idea that I should then communicate to someone in their love language or should I understand that somebody is not going to communicate to me in my love language because it's not theirs, right? So they're, they are a gift giver and I'm not a, a good at receiving gifts. So I have to understand that they are expressing love, even though it doesn't work for me. Like there's, there's a tension there. I think it's there. both though, because I think, I think it's a compromise, right? So you make that small effort to be able to communicate in the other person's love language. But then you also have to be accepting the fact that they're not always going to be communicating in yours. But as long as you know each other's, you can compromise a bit and meet each other halfway. I like it. My my other love language is well-commented SAS code. <laughs> so I will remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next Valentine's Day. And also chocolate-covered right? food. Chocolate-covered anything. anything. Yep. So I have become quite fascinated with machine learning and the production of text material by computers. Oh, yeah. This is good stuff. Um, Natural language processing. Mm. And so Google has a, like, the foremost apparatus to to be able to do this. And it's called GP3, I think think is is what it is. And it is able to actually generate text that is uh, remarkably human-like. And there's an article in Nature in August of 21 by Holly Elise that I thought was absolutely fascinating because apparently what is happening is that this natural language processing is being used by scientists who are not on the straight up and up who are trying to pad their bibliographies. Oh, write papers. So what they're doing is they're using this natural language processing to 
inaccurately back translate articles that are written in various in various places back to English and and, and they're publishing them in the special really. editions of certain journals that actually have good editorial gatekeeping. Okay, so they're With not the making same authors though or a no, there's a, they found 860 publications that include included at, at least one of these they're calling them tortured phrases. So what this is, is this is the natural language oh processing goodness. inaccurately translating sort of standard scientific phraseology, and those are a giveaway for these, these sort of plagiarized publications that are finding themselves in the special, the special journals. Okay, so just so I understand, the, the, they're not asking a computer to make up a paper. They're asking no, the this, computer in this in this instance. I'm going to talk about to uh, translate. In this instance, it's really a translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so some of these tortured phrases that they have picked up that are, that the are dead indicative yep. of of this faulty translation is. One is colossal information. What do you think that's <laughs> big data? Big data. The other one is counterfeit consciousness. Confounding? Uh, artificial intelligence. Artificial, artificial intelligence. intelligence. Oh, wow. What is profound neural organization? A deep network. neural network. Yes. Deep neural network. <laughs> Leftover vitality. Uh, uh, unexplained vari variation. Remaining energy. Oh, gosh. Haze figuring. What? Haze, Haze figuring? figuring? What's that? No idea. <laughs> Cloud computing. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and then flag to commotion. <laughs> Flagged signal to noise. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh wow, Matt, you're brilliant. This is and like then how about the, this is this one. Matt, you have to get this, this one. This one is irregular esteem. Uh, irregular <laughs> intermittent intermittent Ir praise. Irregular esteem is random value. Random values. <laughs> That's so good. Oh God! That's so good. So good. Oh, so did and, they like go English to like Polish yeah, or some other language and then back to like, English to yeah, do a double filter uh, and see what the, the translation I, I algorithm does? I think apparently, oh, so good. apparently, a lot of the uh, suspect authors are from Asia. Oh. I could double my uh, total catalog <laughs> through this. This is great news. That, that is, is so. <laughs> that is terrible. You just have to aim so low. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mine is a short one, and if you're wondering, it's not because I can only find the abstract and left the paper in my office. That is not the reason. I'm keeping it short there intentionally. Are other reasons? No. So this, I don't know if you guys came across this paper in Travel Medicine and Infectious Diseases. No. It was entitled No Time to Die. An in-depth analysis of James Bond's exposure to infectious yes, one agents. Yes, one of my students presented this in class. This yeah. is brilliant. So somebody, so so these folks went through <laughs> all of it's the hysterical. James Bond movies, three thousand one hundred and thirteen minutes of evening hours per author, three authors, <laughs> watching all of these movies and going through and categorizing all of the different potential infectious disease exposures that James Bond would have had. You know, things obviously there's the the sexually transmitted yep, ones. Um, <laughs> then there's like, you know, the not washing your hands kind of thing. Because after you these, kill someone with your bare hands, you should wash your hands. Exposure to, to, to blood and all of those things. To, to me, the, the interesting part is not the specifics of what they found. They did, of course, in their analysis, find that there were a lot of different potential exposures that one could have while 
you know, traveling internationally and conducting James Bond type escapades. To me, the more interesting part is just that somebody commits that much time to something, you know, that you know, to get your paper into the travel medicine and infectious disease, journal, or in our case, to get something into the BMJ Christmas edition. Right. I just I admire people who commit <laughs> to something that sounds like a funny idea or a good idea, and then are willing to commit thousands of hours to actually going through and watching all of the James Bond movies and writing this down. I just you know, or like 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 doing a series of experiments and comparing. <laughs> Marmite to Vegemite? Correct. The Chris Buell Marmite Vegemite. But that did not, I, I presumably that did not take day. you, yeah, I was going to say, that did not take you thousands of hours. No. Like, this is. One of the things that I remember from that article was that they, 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 they counted the number of times that James Bond appeared with a liquid in his hand. And apparently yes. 25% of the time it was a non-alcoholic beverage. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't remember that part. Because I think it was, it, was, it was not just infectious disease risks that he was taking. It was sort of public health risks yeah, yeah, that yeah. he was taking. So what were his other and beverages? he rarely wore a seatbelt. That was the other, yeah. He never, he almost never wore a seatbelt. But of course, it was, you know, in the 70s, nobody wore a seatbelt, right? Yeah, that's true. Oh, my goodness. So anyway. That was hysterical. Kudos to it. them for committing to the bit. There was an article published in Science News that I jumped on from a couple of months ago about smellscapes. And this has, as an environmental health epidemiologist, this has always been something that's been interesting to me is about exposures that we don't typically quantify or we don't think about, that we don't think about. And I think bad smells <laughs> or good smells are one of those kind of exposures that, you know, if we're talking, I mean, even if we're talking kind of continuing the conversation about living in poverty can be associated with bad smells. I mean, I've, I've done some research on rodents, for example, and kind of that's an example of, of visuals of kind of seeing rodents in your living environment that makes you feel badly about where you live. And bad smells is another example of one of those exposures. And it's very subjective in terms of how you, or it's thought to be very subjective in terms of how you quantify what's a bad smell, you know. And so this this paper was reflecting on a number of papers that have tried to regenerate ancient smellscapes. Mm. So to look at archaeological remains and to try to figure out what historical societies smelled like <laughs> to people who lived there. And so the paper walks through some experiments where some researchers have tried to, on one hand, redevelop Cleopatra's perfume from DNA remnants and from molecular evidence kind of found on artifacts and to try to figure out what she must have, this is like the most alluring woman in history, kind of what she must have smelled like. And then on the other hand, tried to recreate some of the putrid smells of ancient Egypt Why? or of, of Rome. And in doing so, there were a number of papers that have concluded that we actually don't smell things that differently across the world or throughout history, that there are certain things that, you know, that maybe smell or bad smells are things that actually could be quantified in a fairly reliable way that across cultures and seemingly across history, we seem to think the same things smell bad and the same things smell good. There's not this huge variation, whereas you'd say, well, you might think pine needles smell terrific and you might think pine needles smell horrible. And so, you know, the kind of combination of these papers kind of led me to think about whether or not smells is actually something that could be quantified in epidemiological research in a way where now it's kind of a qualitative measurement largely. Okay. That is not something I would have ever thought anybody would be researching. 
I love that. Wait, smells. what? So wait, so yeah. what did Cleopatra smell like? They all yeah. right. So here, let's see. They they they, they came up with it's a combination of smells. This obviously was an international. An international collaboration. Let's see. They called it the Mendesian scent. Here, they said, strong but pleasant, long-lasting blend of spiciness and sweetness, including desert date oil, mirth, cinnamon, and pine resin. This was the combination. Sounds nice. This sounds kind of kind of like earthy, like <laughs> pine resin and cinnamon. I don't know if I know what mirth smells like, but do it you, also seems do, very biblical. So, do you think that pretty soon we'll be able to buy Cleopatra's perfume I in think stores? That's what they're, I think that's what they that's, were going for, right? Because it probably would sell. Is, that's right? where the money is. I know right? what uh, what I'm giving <laughs> for Christmas wife, gifts right? this year. <laughs> All right. Well, that is fascinating. <laughs> 